Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. yes, I was blessed. Christy was here and uh, helped prepare a, a lovely Thanksgiving meal for me. And so uh, that, I'm very thankful for that this Thanksgiving. So, all right, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that Jesus has accomplished for us. We thank you for, for the many blessings you've given us, including the privilege of being your ambassadors, the, the lights that you have sent into the world to, to lighten the world with the truth of your kingdom. We, we ask that you will empower us and, and transform us and make us more effective in carrying this final message of mercy to the world, that you might come, come soon. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly uh, on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title this week is End Time Deceptions. End Time Deceptions. When you hear the title, End Time Deceptions, what, what do you consider? What comes to mind? Satan impersonating Christ. Satan impersonating Christ. And the lesson, of course, focuses on near-death experiences, reincarnation, necromancy, ancestor worship, and personations and other appearances, which would be uh, Satan impersonating Christ, would fall under that one near the end. And that's what the lesson focuses on. Uh, Given what our world has gone through in the last couple of years, though, as I I thought of the title, End Time Deceptions, uh, I started thinking, and I thought, well, what would be the focus or the purpose of end time deceptions? The goal of end time deceptions. Is there any particular focus of end time deceptions that are different than the deception Satan has been perpetrating all along because he's been deceiving since Eden. So he's a deceiver, he's been deceiving all along. Are end time deceptions different in some way in their focus, in their intention, in their goal than the deceptions that have happening through human history? That's what I thought of. And I thought, well, would end time deceptions be particularly designed to counter God's God's end-time message. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Yeah. Does God send a final plea, a final message of mercy, specifically intended for the last people before he comes to prepare them for his return? Is there a message like that, a special message? Third angel's message. Oh, the three angels' messages, yeah. And, and, and is that message, and would the end-time deceptions be particularly designed to counter that? Yes. 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 And we have, as you know, a, a, a magazine entitled The Final Message of Mercy to the World, The Three Angels. If you're there in the uh, studio this, this week, you can pick one up out in the, in the lobby. If you're watching online, you can download a digital copy or read the flip book on our website. Or if you have a U.S. postal address, just email us and we'll send you one at no cost. But the purpose, so to try to unpack the, the final end time deceptions, let's just do a brief review of the final end time message, the final message of mercy to the world. And the final end time message starts with advancing the eternal gospel. And the eternal gospel, the gospel, the good news that's always been true in eternity past and eternity future, is the good news about God. And we do this by returning to worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. In other words, we return to creator worship 
And we understand that the creator builds reality in his laws or those design laws upon which reality operate. And by worshiping him, the law of worship, we become like him. And so we begin to live his principles and thereby bringing glory to him. We bring glory to him and we're in all of him. We admire him and glorify him because the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. Stop judging him to be an imperial dictator who runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome or a human dictator runs a a country and makes up rules and punishes rule breaks. You have to stop worshiping that imperial dictator God and start worshiping the God that Jesus revealed, the creator of reality. And then call people to leave that fallen imperial system that runs like Babylon runs, a pagan system. And we call them back to worship this creator God. And by leaving the false systems of worship, uh, they stop pursuing justice. We stop pursuing justice through more law and more coercion to force everybody to behave the way we think they should behave. We stop doing that. Instead, we lead them to love God and love others so they have a change of heart and therefore treat others as they would like to be treated themselves through a transformation of heart and a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the founders of the SDA Church, describing the final message of mercy that is to lighten the world in the book Christ Object Lessons 415, wrote the following. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Yes, it's been misunderstood and misinterpreted that God is a dictator who makes up rules and kills people. We've misunderstood and misrepresented God's character. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. The time of the messages of the special end time final message, the messages of three angels. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. I'm going to suggest to you that this message of God's character of love, his methods, how he runs his universe on truth, love, and liberty, calling people to begin worshiping him in that way and stop worshiping this rule monger, power monger, enforcer, source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death on rule breakers that much of the world believes God to be. This truth about who God is revealed in Jesus is the final message. It's the eternal good news. And I'm going to suggest to you that Satan's end-time deceptions will be designed to counter this end-time message of mercy. The end-time deceptions are going to be designed to keep people loyal to an imperial law system, a system of punishing rule-breakers, a system of coercive enforcement, a beastly system. Keep people loyal to that while they believe they're serving Jesus. That's what I think the end-time deception is going to be, and I'll walk you through it. The Bible says the truth sets us free, but we must go beyond the truth of doctrines to the the truth to the truth that protects us from what I believe is the ultimate end-time deception, which is embracing and practicing the methods of God's enemy. That's ultimately the deception. And how does Satan trick people to think they're worshiping Jesus and advancing even Bible true doctrines 
while they're still Christ's enemy. And you remember Christ said that they'll come to him in the end of time and said, Lord, we did all this in your name. Cast out demons, perform miracles, and so forth. And he says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. How is it possible for these people to be thinking they're advancing doctrinal Bible truths while they're actually working for Satan? Uh, this is what I think it is. By replacing the truth of God's character, his methods, and his law with Satan's type of law, character, and methods of governing. So you may have the true doctrine on baptism or Sabbath or state of the dead, but you advance it with imposed laws, coercive enforcement, and restrictions of freedoms. This is the method. It's a subtle trick. The truth that saves us is not a specific doctrine. It's the truth about God himself. If we have the wrong God, but the, the right doctrines, we're lost. If we have the right God, but do not yet have all of our doctrines correct, but we, because we have the right God, we love truth, and we're advancing in coming to know more doctrines rightly. But if we have the right God, but don't have all the doctrines correct, we're still saved. Do you get that? Yeah. Therefore, Satan advances his cause by getting people to focus on doctrinal truth while embracing functional or operational lies. The truth about the Sabbath, the truth about the state of the dead, while we function arbitrarily and authoritatively, coercively upon others. Focus on being right about facts while embracing the wrong methods. Focus on right beliefs while applying the wrong principles. Focus on right religion while harboring selfish attitudes. Focus on right fundamental beliefs or creeds while developing satanic character. Focus on advancing the so-called right doctrinal beliefs and religious observations through the methods of the world, imposed law, imposed penalty, coercive pressure, as means of pursuing justice. Satan experienced great success in this method 2,000 years ago when he was able to deceive the religious leaders of God's church, the Jewish nation, into rejecting the Messiah that they had been waiting their entire existence to receive. How did he do this? Satan didn't achieve his goal of getting them to reject Christ by getting them to reject the Bible or reject God as creator, or reject the Sabbath day, or the sanctuary, or tithing, or the dietary principles that they were taught to live by. He didn't get them to reject the doctrines, did he? No. no. It wasn't, they, they did not have the wrong list of fundamental beliefs. They had the wrong God, the wrong methods, the wrong principles. They did not embrace design law, and they set all of their doctrines in a human law construct. Rules to be kept, behaviors that you get demerits for, punishments as justice, this is what they set. 
and they, they said it all in this human law setting and came to view God as authoritarian, dictatorial, punishing, unforgiving, and severe, a God who required some type of sacrifice, like animal sacrifice. They viewed the, the use of law and punishment as a way to achieve justice, and so they used external force to coerce people, even killing the innocent to advance their cause. This is John chapter 11, verses 49 to 50. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas argued, it's better to kill an innocent to save the nation. We have people to protect We can't let this man go free if we want to save our institutions and thereby advance God's cause and save lives. It's right to do this. We've got lives to save. We have seen the same ungodly and evil methods in operation over the past two years around the world. People being seduced into using coercion to advance a cause they view as just. They argue, we must save lives. We're an emergency. Therefore, it's right and good to use imposed laws to intimidate, to find, to restrict liberties, to arrest, to use propaganda to destroy reputations and careers, to restrict freedom of speech, to prevent the truth from exposing our destructive methods. It is better to hurt a few employees than to lose our government funding to our organization. We have a health message to advance. We have institutions to protect. It's better for a few to be inconvenienced and their liberties violated than for our organization to lose its institutions, for we have a special end-time message to take to the world. Do you think I'm overstating this? No. 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 Question. Yeah. Then when, G- when Satan impersonates Christ at the end and comes down, well, he comes down, he shows himself with glory and majesty and all that, and when he's, how is he then misleading? Uh, um, especially when he says that God changed his rules now. I think he would declare that Saturday is changed to Sunday or something like that. I mean, that's doctrinal. He's going to come down. Uh, So that's one possibility that has not yet occurred, uh, and it very well may not happen. It may happen. It very well may not happen. He may come back and say, I'm here to save you all because we're in a galactic war. I am your creator. I brought life and terraformed this planet 50. 15,000 years ago, I put human life on this planet, and and I had to leave you all here while I went back and fought in a galactic war uh, beyond which you can imagine, and, and our enemy is coming to this planet to destroy the planet, and I, I'm here to protect you, but, but because of uh, the principles we live by, the principles of liberty, I can't use my forces to protect you unless you are agreed as a human race. The whole world needs to come into agreement and want my protection. If you all don't agree, to agree, I'll just leave you and the enemy's coming to destroy you. But it's your choice because I respect your freedom. 
and he'll do various technological and other supernatural sciences show incredible power. He might show what's happening on other planets uh, that he will make up and appear to be destroyed. And what will the leaders of this world do? And he may go around and, and heal people of various diseases, showing that he has incredible power. And what will, what will happen? He'll say, and I love you all. And if you guys decide to pass some laws to, to, uh, uh, to uh, take away the right to buy or sell, well, that's just discipline, trying to bring everybody to repentance. We want you to recognize me as your creator and your sovereign. And if you do, I can save you. And I, and I want you all to know that when I left here, I instituted a special day to remember me by, and that is the seventh-day Sabbath that, that the Jewish people and the Adventist people have remembered. And, and I want you all to begin resting each day from Friday, each week from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. But, but if you don't, well, law and justice requires that, that lawbreakers be punished. And, and so as a first step, we'll, we'll, we will restrict your travel if you don't. And a second step, we're going to restrict your ability to buy and sell. And as a third step, we're going to put you in prison. And if you won't repent and worship on the Seventh-day Sabbath, then, then I'm going to have to ultimately kill you because sin, the wages of sin is death, and sin requires it. I, I, I love you too much. I don't want to do that. So please worship on the Sabbath and worship me. Do you really think that Satan cares that you worship on Sabbath if you, like the Jews 2,000 years ago, hate Jesus and worship him? No. No. Wow. So this is the deception, folks. It is not the specific doctrine. The doctrine, he may very well embrace the Sabbath and promote it. But the methods he will use to promote it will be the methods of force, coercion, and inflicted punishment as law-breaking. And many Adventists who believe that God works that way will embrace this false God because he's promoting the right doctrine using the methods they think God uses. Well, yes, God must punish sinners. God must punish. And he's being gracious. He's given lots of discipline, giving time to repent, but they won't. Those of us who understand God does not work this way will not buy into this. So back to this idea of methods. How many millions of faithful people around the world have embraced these satanic methods of treating others because they have trusted their church leadership or they trusted their government to tell them that this is the right thing to do? How many families have been split and damaged in the last two years? I've heard horror stories of families torn apart over the last two years because of fear, fear which inflames selfishness. And then we, when we're selfish, it justifies the use of satanic methods, coercive pressure, control on others to make us feel safe. Over the last two years, as the world has applied these methods of force, coercion, restrictions of liberties, as families have allowed fear to dominate them, what has been the result? Have we reaped more love in the world? Have we become a people more like Jesus in character? Has the fellowship of family and friends grown closer during this crisis? Have we pressed together, supporting each other, recognizing the differences of our individualities and leaving others free to make their own decisions as they deem as best as God leads in their life in these decisions? Or, or do we divide? Have millions, billions been duped to believe this is life and death? 
and those who won't do what the government says. They're our enemies. They're fools. They're evil. They're trying to kill the good people who comply. And it's right if they won't comply to punish them, to fire them from their jobs, to fine them, to imprison them, to make them stay on confinement in their houses. It's right. Do we recognize this as part of Satan's end-time deception? His way of implanting his methods into hearts and minds of getting people to believe it is actually right to treat other people like this as long as it's for a good cause to save lives or perhaps protect the planet or some other good cause. Some might counter me and say, wait a second, hold on, we're not doctors, we're not scientists. How are we to know that this wasn't the right thing to do? Uh, we can't read that literature, it was all confusing to us. Aren't we supposed to follow the healthcare leaders and our doctors when they tell us to do this stuff? I'm going to tell you, how are you to know? Because what just happened to the world was not about the science. It was about the methods being employed and how we treat others. Okay. Um, let me finish this point, and then, then I'll take the question. Yeah. Even if people didn't have access to the science or couldn't understand it, every single reasoning person was capable of discerning the methods being employed. Restrictions of liberty to travel, assemble, worship, speech, visit family, coercion, closure of business, terminating jobs, arrests, fines, loss of licenses, accusations, vilification, propaganda, and lies of all kinds that were told. Any reasoning person could have seen those methods and recognized when you have truth, you don't need to use those. Yeah, Mark, you had a question or somebody else? I was just going to add to your argument about the methods that Satan uses and even regarding the Sabbath. I think I shared with this with you a number of years ago. But this is in the Bible commentary, Ellen White quote. Um, it says, it says uh, but the conscience should not be compelled even for the observance of the genuine Sabbath, for God will accept only willing service. I think that's wow. an yeah. important point even as Adventists to understand how we present the gospel, uh, it should be one that invites uh, people to understand that the value of the Sabbath and not to be compelled upon and forced. And do you all agree with that? Yes. 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 And did she say, read that, read that quote again, please, Mark. But the conscience should not be compelled even for the observance of the genuine Sabbath. For God will accept. Did she say, the, did she say the conscience should not be compelled by humans? Only God has the right to compel the conscience. Did she say that? No. 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 Do you understand that many Adventist leaders believe that that statement applies to human coercion against humans, but doesn't apply to God's coercion of humans? That it is righteous for God to use force and threat to coerce us, and if we don't agree, it's righteous for him to use power to torture and kill us, which is coercion. Many Adventist leaders believe that because they believe God's law functions like human law. And they believe the Sabbath is just a made-up rule, an arbitrary test of obedience to see who will be loyal to. And if you won't be loyal, then justice requires that the lawgiver punish lawbreakers. But the author who wrote that understood you cannot get love by coercing and threatening people who don't love you. You only get more rebellion. It only spreads Satan's kingdom to use those methods.
God will not use them. It's truth, love, and freedom. These other methods that we've seen used the last couple of years, again, you didn't, it wasn't, ultimately it wasn't about the science. It was about implanting these evil methods into the hearts and minds of people. And any reasoning person can see those methods. They're not from God. They're from God's enemy. So why did so many collude? Why did so many Christian leaders collude? Not all did, but many did. Why did they do it? One, because they were afraid. They were actually afraid. Two, fear leads, when you're afraid, fear leads to selfishness. And the survival drives. A willingness to take matter into own hands to protect self and practice methods that make us feel safe including forcing other people that we view as a danger to behave in ways that will make us feel less threatened. That's what fear does. Because they believed the lies they were being told, because many of these people who practice, many of these Christian leaders who practice these beastly methods accept the idea, the lie, that justice is achieved through law and punishment. And because they didn't trust God with the outcomes of choosing to live his methods, that's why they felt they needed to take the take into their own hands. They didn't trust God to protect their institutions' finances. They were afraid that if they stood up against the government for their employees, that their government funding would be cut off. And they had a responsibility to protect those institutions. And what has been the result is what we've taught in here many times. When you understand design law, you do not have to be a prophet to predict outcomes. If you hold a pen up and let go of it, you can predict exactly what will happen when you let go. If you jump off a building, you can predict what will happen. When you understand design laws, you can predict things. Unless there is some external intervention to change the outcome. You jump off a building, but the fire department has blown up one of those big giant airbag things and you land on it. They intervene to change the outcome. Unless there's an intervention, things are very predictable. And the fire department's action was still working in harmony with those design laws to change the outcome by using those design laws to cushion you from what you've done. And so what was the outcome? Very predictable. Whenever we violate God's laws, we always cause harm. We injure ourselves and we injure others. And over the last two years, it's incalculable. To, it's, it's beyond calculation the amount of harm that has been caused by all the so-called actions forced upon us by government that were claimed to protect. I will tell you with scientific certainty that those actions cause multiple times more injury, harms, and deaths than anything that they helped or protected. And, those, and that harm is cascading down and will cascade down at least three or four generations now because of the epigenetic changes that are inflicted when certain behaviors are engaged upon or actions are taken. It's incalculable to harm, very predictable. 
And I'm not saying any of this to change any government because I don't think we're going to do that or any government policy. I am saying all of this to change hearts and minds of people, to prepare us for what's coming. For those who have not yet fully solidified and hardened themselves into the ways of this world, to fulfill our end-time message and mission of calling people out of the Babylonian imperial law system. And to understand leaving that Babylonian system is about leaving the methods of that system behind, not simply changing your doctrines. Leaving the Babylonian system is not about changing your day of, simply about changing your day of worship and then embracing the same methods of coercion and force upon others. We cannot win God's cause using Satan's methods. We cannot do it. So as we approach the end time, we must look beyond the specific doctrines and beliefs to the methods, characters, and principles of God and make decisions in harmony with God's way of doing things. Let me say this very clearly. The saved will not be a group of people who know all things. The saved will not be a group of people who believe every text of scripture in exactly the same way. The saved will not be a group of people free from every misunderstanding or false idea. The saved will be those who, and I'm going to give a long list. Here's the the identifiers of the saved who know God and Jesus Christ who now has sent. John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ now sent. The saved are those who have God's law of truth, love, and liberty written upon their hearts as the primary motive of action, Hebrews 8, 10. Who love the truth and are willing to grow in the truth as soon as they can comprehend it, John 8, 32, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, 2 Corinthians 2, 10. Who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Matthew 22, 37, who love their neighbors or others as themselves and will give their lives for their brothers. Matthew 22, 38, who refuse to use the methods of coercion upon other person's conscience. Romans 14, 5, Ephesians 4, 15, who practice the methods of God in governance of self. Galatians 5, 23. And who trust God with how things turn out. Romans 1.17. Understand, when it came to this last two years and a specific medical treatment, there were people of God, on God's team and on God's side, on both sides of whether that treatment should be used. The righteous of God on the side of using the treatment presented their reasons for it in love and left others free to decide for themselves. The beastly were not willing to leave others free and used external force and coercion to advance what they thought was right. It's not really about whether that treatment was the right treatment or not. It's about the methods we use. Jesus said when he comes and he separates the sheep from the goats, separates the two camps, What he described in that description 
about the differentiation of the sheep and the goats is not a list of doctrinal beliefs. It is how we treat others. As you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. This is what separates them. Why? Hear this very clearly. Because the methods we choose to apply to ourselves in how we treat other people determines what law gets written upon our hearts and minds. Are we practicing the methods of God, of truth, of love, of liberty, and how we treat others? Or are we practicing the methods of fear, self-preservation, deception, justification of the use of coercion and force on other people? For the greater good, of course. This application of coercive methods under the guise of doing good to protect, to save lives, is a much greater and serious end-time deception than merely believing a false doctrine. And with that in mind, we'll look at our memory text, which is 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. Their end will match their deeds. That's Bible. That's the Bible. Their ends will match their deeds, yes. Practice the methods of Satan and how you treat others, regardless of how sincerely you believe it is right to do so, and you will reap the satanic mold upon your character and end up hating God, the things of God, and the people of God. So this brings us to another question that's often asked. Well, what about sincerity? Won't those who sincerely believe the wrong thing, but with an honest heart, still be saved? You ever heard this question? And it's a great question because it affords us the opportunity to differentiate what ultimately matters from what is secondary and not truly the ultimate issue. See, if one, and, and if one sincerely believes something wrong about a fact or a particular doctrine, such as method of baptism, sprinkling versus immersion, or how one performs communion, or whether, uh, in fact, you need to wash feet before communion or not, if one sincerely believes something wrong about those things, it really doesn't matter as long as they practice the right methods in how they live their life. Truth, love, freedom, and trust God. Conversely, if they believe the right thing about those specific doctrines, and pick one, it doesn't really matter, but they practice the methods of God's enemy upon others, coercion, force, intimidation, pressure. It doesn't matter that they have the right Sabbath if they just crucified the Lord of the Sabbath and want him down by Friday sunset to keep it. What I've just unpacked for you, in my view, is the most serious end-time deception that will be so powerful that if it's possible, the very elect will be deceived because this end-time deception will be advancing and pursuing something that is right 
something that is righteous, like saving lives. That is a righteous goal to protect and save lives. Or bringing people to Jesus, as in the, in the dark ages it was so-called, we got to save souls. The goal was a righteous goal. The methods were the methods of God's enemy. Caiaphas's statement, it's better for one to die to save the nation and save the people. That's what he said. His goal, to save the nation and the people, good goal. What method? Kill an innocent person to achieve it. Bad method. This is the deception that's coming upon the world. And people will identify with some goal that they recognize and they value and they want to achieve. And they won't recognize the dangerous and destructive methods being employed. Why won't they recognize it? Because they worship a God who they believe uses those methods. Impose law, impose punishment. God must kill the wicked in the end. Therefore, it's right to do it. Yes, hand. So are the methods you're talking about, I mean, clearly anything sort of theological, we would all agree with what you're saying. But we have all kinds of coercion in, our, in all societies and have for forever. Where do you draw the line? I mean, we have traffic laws, we have laws against you know, drug use, we have all kinds of laws for all kinds of things. Your industry as a psychiatrist, you can't just prescribe anything you want to anybody forever and in as much quantity as you want. So where do you draw that line? So the Bible gives us the principles, the right use of, in a world of sin, which is what we're in, of human governments is to restrain evil, holding in check the forces that would overtly harm, like a murderer, a rapist, a a pedophile, somebody drug dealer. We restrain the evildoer, but you cannot advance righteousness through imposed law. And what we're talking about here is not restraining evil, but advancing a righteous goal. And that's the difference. So when you pass a law that it's illegal to sell drugs on the street, you are not advancing righteousness. You're not not saying you must do this in order to be righteous. We're restraining people from harming others. That's the difference. What happened over the last two years, though, was not restraining evil. It was forcing people to take action and governance of themselves that they believed was wrong for them to do. That's the difference. So now, um, any, that's a good question. It's a great question. Thank you for that. Other questions? Really prepare your minds for this. Taking care of Mother Earth, isn't that another way of Satan taking control of us? Yes. So just saying it, taking care of Mother Earth, not, not the way you said it. We are called as God's, to be God's stewards, to, to care for the Earth and manage Earth. And the Bible even talks about the punishment that come upon those who destroy the Earth. So as good stewards, we manage the, the things that God has put into our care with his principles so we don't exploit, we're not cruel to animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But you're exactly right that what's happening in the world today is a a deception of the green movement, which is not actually advancing a creator God and and acting as his stewards to protect the earth. What they're doing instead is they're actually worshiping the earth. It's a form of earth worship. There is no God in their mind. And, And we are 
often even described as parasites on the earth. And we are, and if we don't restrain and hold back the parasites, the human race, we will overpopulate and destroy the planet and thus destroy ourselves. And so this movement about protecting the earth is really a movement about restricting human growth. And they value the planet more than they value the people made in the image of God. The true Christian view is we value the people more than we value the planet the way it is because the planet the way it is, we believe, is going to be destroyed and and recreated as a new earth for the home of the righteous. So we recognize that while we will not exploit and pollute and, and destroy the earth, that nothing we do is going to actually save the planet as it is. It will be recreated anew. So that's not our focus. But the focus of the green movement is to dupe people exactly as you say into all of these types of behaviors that are designed not really to save the planet, but to actually uh, restrict and take away liberties from people. And I think ultimately reduce the the population growth on this planet. Amen. Amen. That's their goal. Other questions? Sunday's lesson is about mysticism. And mysticism's primary aspect is focused on your internal experiences, which are believed to be some supernatural impression or movement, uh, something that happens within that may be either from God or from some cosmic force of some kind, some energy. Uh, This is mostly pursued through some form of Eastern meditation or mindfulness practices. And it is a closing of the mind to external objective truth and pursuing an internal experience or mood shift or impression believed to be uh, some force. It could be, for some people, God. It could be the Holy Spirit. They believe it could be some force of the cosmos. Uh, In uh, the last paragraph of the lesson, it says the following. Those who think that it matters not what they believe in doctrine— so long as they believe in Jesus Christ, are on dangerous ground. The Roman inquisitors who condemned to death untold numbers of Protestants believed in Jesus Christ. Those who had cast out demons in Christ's name had believed in him. And then that quotes Ellen White out of Great Controversy 520, the following. The position that it is of no consequence what men believe is one of Satan's most successful deceptions. He knows that the truth received in the love of it sanctifies the soul of the receiver. Therefore, he's constantly seeking to substitute false theories, fables, another gospel. What do you think the point of this paragraph is? The idea that the authors want us to embrace and take home. How would you sum it up? All right, so do you think the authors are focusing on the importance of getting your doctrinal beliefs correct? Yes, all 47 of them. Yeah, 28 of them now, right? Yeah. Uh, And and it seems to have support from Ellen White. They put an Ellen White quote in there, so that makes it like uh, underline it and highlight that. But is there a subtle subtle error introduced here? Subtle error if you don't recognize it. Well, we've already talked about in the lesson today, the difference between having right doctrines and right methods. What is the primary purpose of all true doctrines? Their primary purpose is to lead us back to a knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Which is advancing the eternal gospel. That's our primary purpose. And as Ellen G. White said in the quote, the purpose of Satan in introducing false ideas is to introduce another gospel, a false gospel, which is a false view of God. 
The primary purpose of our doctrines should be like spokes on a wheel with God at the center. And as we advance our understanding of the doctrine, it leads us back to the knowledge of God. And God is infinite, so he has multiple aspects that we can approach him through in different elements of his character. But the, if we follow them back, it leads us to a knowledge of God. And life eternal is the truth about God. But if you take the 28 fundamental beliefs and you disconnect them from the truth about God, the truth about his design law, how he creates reality to operate, and you substitute and stick in Roman law, and you connect your right doctrines to Roman law, imposed law, imposed punishments, you can have the right state of the dead. You can have the right Sabbath day. You can have the right uh, uh, food doctrinal teachings of food and, and so forth. But if you have an imposed law giver who imposes punishments, then all your doctrines are leading people away from God. It's only as they connect you to the truth of who God is that your doctrines help you. And that's what the Jews showed us 2,000 years ago with all of their right doctrines leading them to reject God and kill him because they had the wrong God. Tim? Yes. Could they be taking her out of context here? Because she says nothing about doctrine in this quote. Yeah. Right. And they're they're specifically referring to doctrine, but she doesn't mention doctrine in her quote. And you've talked how important it is, you know, about what you believe. You become what you believe. Right. And about the truth. And and doctrine means teaching. And so the things we teach are supposed to be true. So they're connecting it through the idea that, that it is through truth and the truth sets us free and that our doctrines are are uh, are supposed to be true and therefore we have to have true doctrines so it matters what we... They're, they're making a connection, but you're right. She doesn't say anything about doctrines. That's a good point. Ellen G. White wrote herself that her own church leadership did the exact thing the Jews did 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to read this to you from 1888 Materials, page 1478. This is what she wrote. On many occasions, the Holy Spirit did work, but those who resisted the Spirit of God at Minneapolis were waiting for a chance to travel over the same ground again because their spirit was the same. Afterward, when they had evidence heaped upon evidence, some were convicted, but those who were not softened and subdued by the Holy Spirit's working, put their own interpretation upon every manifestation of the grace of God, and they have lost much. They pronounced in their heart and soul and words that this manifestation of the Holy Spirit was fanaticism and delusion. They stood like a rock, the waves of mercy flowing upon and around them, but beaten back by their hard and wicked hearts, which resisted the Holy Spirit's working. Had this been received, it would have made them wise into salvation, holier men, prepared to do the work God had sanct with sanctified abilities. But all the universe of heaven witnessed the disgraceful treatment of Jesus Christ represented by the Holy Spirit. Had Christ been before them, they would have treated him in a manner similar to that in which the Jews treated Christ. Wow. That's the church leadership in 1888. And in 1888, I want you to get your mind around this. What doctrines did the leadership of the SDA church have wrong? Did they have the wrong Bible, the wrong Sabbath, the wrong state of the dead, the wrong sanctuary, the wrong health message, the wrong tithing practices, the wrong beliefs about creation? They had all the doctrines right. But Ellen White said with right doctrines, they still rejected the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. How is that possible? 
because it's ultimately not about the right doctrines. It's about the right God and his methods and his eternal design laws. And if you replace the law of God with the Roman imperial law system, you can have the right list of doctrines, but they lead you to the wrong imperial punishing God. And that's what they did. And they embraced and clung to that wrong law. And the two issues were summed up in the two books written by the two leaders of the two sides. Wagner's book was entitled The Gospel in Galatians, whereas the General Conference President, Butler, wrote a book called The Law in Galatians. And that's the sum. The gospel, the good news of God's character of love, the final message of mercy that we read about from Christ Object Lessons earlier, versus the law, the rules, the punishing God. And we're still stuck in the wilderness, devoid of the water of life, waiting for the latter rain, because the organization continues to advance the imposed law concept of a punishing God, the penal legal model of salvation. Monday's lesson, near-death experiences. Do you, do you recognize the contradiction that these things claim to present? These, these experiences are presented by some as evidence of consciousness after death. That's how they're presented, yes or no? Yeah. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and discernment, you, they expose themselves as false by their own, by their own title. They claim to be able to give insight to what happens to somebody in death who are dead, but the events themselves are called near-death experiences. If you're near Canada, are you actually in Canada? (laughs) (laughs) These people, I mean, get your mind around. This is very key to understanding these experiences. Not one single human being has ever died and come back to tell us their experience of what happened while they were dead. Not one. Death is not the, understand this, death is not the transient pausing of the function of one of the body's organs, such as the heart stopping beating for a period of time and then restarting. That is not death. Death is necrosis, cellular decay and rot. That is death. Until there's cellular decay and rot, death has not yet occurred. That's why in medicine, in the emergency room, if somebody drowns in cold water, like in a winter lake, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. It's a rule. They're they're not dead until they're warm and dead. If they come in blue, cold, not breathing, You have to warm them up and try to revive them. And if you can't revive them, then ultimately they're dead. But many times, cold and no functioning that you can measure of the heart and so forth, you warm them up, you restart it, they're alive again. Those people hadn't died. A person can donate an organ, such as the heart. That heart can be taken out of the body, put on ice, flown across the country, put in another person's body, it starts beating again. Has that heart died? No, all those cells are alive. They're still living cells. They're not dead. Likewise, the heart can stop beating in a human being and start again. The heart didn't die and that person didn't die. So these near-death experiences can't tell us anything about what's happening in the state of death. What they can tell us is what's happening when a person's 
various body systems are not functioning normally. That's what I can tell. Well, when the body systems aren't functioning normally, some people experience this. Interestingly, a person does not even have to be near death to experience a near-death experience. A 1990 study at University of Virginia Science Health Center um, found uh, uh, 58 people who had near-death experiences, examined those 58 people, and uh, more than half of them would have survived with no medical care at all. In other words, their experience was not life-threatening and did not take them near death. But they had a near-death experience. Well, it wasn't near death. It was something that was affecting their normal function of their cells. And other experiments document that people can induce these near-death experiences by a series of hyperventilation and breath holding and rapid changes in position, standing and lying down, which all of this changes blood flow and oxygenation to the brain and induces so-called near-death experiences. But it's all artificial. It's just changing brain operations, which is happening when somebody has these so-called near-death experiences. Any questions about that? I will tell you, though, I've talked to people who've had them, real people who've actually gone through this, and these people are convinced by their experiences and no amount of other evidence or truth or Bible knowledge will persuade them otherwise. What they went through with their own personal experience is supreme evidence that overrules everything else. At least the ones I've talked to. Uh, Tuesday's lesson is about reincarnation, which is the belief that at death, the person's individuality recycles through many lives on its way to purification and ultimate eternity. This belief is advanced through the idea of the first law of thermodynamics. And the first law of thermodynamics is that energy is neither created nor destroyed, but is conserved. That means that energy can change shapes or change places, but the energy itself continues to operate in the universe. It is not destroyed. It just changes different forms. So the energy that is in a log that you burn to create heat, that energy becomes heat and it goes into the atmosphere and it cycles back eventually into the plants that pull it from the sun and all this energy is, is just cycling around but it's never destroyed. A Hindu doctor, I was uh, at a medical event once and a Hindu doctor used this argument as, as his belief in, in reincarnation with me. We had a conversation. He says that when he dies, the energy in his body will be recycled into other living organisms, and therefore he will be reincarnated again and again and again until he enters some future state of eternal existence where he never dies, and therefore he lives forever. How would you counter that? What would you say to counter the argument about that? Would you argue that he's wrong about his energy being used in other life forms after he dies? Or would you say, no, that's true? Is that true or false? Yeah, it's true. It's true. The energy is used in other life forms. You plant somebody's body uh, and then put a tree on top of them, <laughs> that tree will draw the nutrients and stuff, and it'll grow into a tree. Their, their energy is being used in another life form. It's true. So how do you counter the argument? And this is where the Bible shows such creator wisdom, the wisdom of reality, and conforms 
or, or comports, our, our modern science confirms that the Bible is scientific and accurate where the Eastern philosophies are not. And, and what is it that confirms that? The Bible tells us that we have three components to a living being. We have the physical body, the matter, and the and Greek, that's soma. Uh, we have the, the energy, which the Bible calls in, in English spirit. In the Greek, it's panuma, which can mean breath or wind, but in this case, breath of life. And what's the Bible say? When we die, the spirit returns to God who gave it. The energy returns to God who gave it. And we also have a soul, which is suke, uh, and we get psych- psychiatry, psyche, psychiatry, psychology, our software, individuality. And so at death, the biblical view is the body turns back to dust. It disintegrates back to dirt. The energy, the breath of life, returns to God and is, and is continually used. But the soul, the software, the individuality, that's stored in the Lamb's book of life. And that's the difference. The Bible separates, and Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. The Bible separates our individuality from the energy that gives us life. They're not the same. Whereas the Hindu and the Eastern versions merge energy and individuality all as one. And so this is where the Bible actually is, is quite right, and the Eastern views have an error built in that leads to the false theology. Uh, Wednesday's lesson is about necromancy. Forms of spiritism, talking to the dead, talking to ancestors, worshiping ancestors, that kind of thing. And do you remember our definition of spiritualism? If you want to identify spiritualism in any form, whether it's um, tea leaves or palm reading or tarot cards or voodoo or, or seances or any form, any form of spiritualism, this is a definition, exposes them all. Spiritualism is the pursuit of knowledge without the investigation of evidence or the use of reason. Think about every form of spiritualism, they want to know something. They want to know what's on the other side. They want to know the future. They want to know whether they should do this. They want to know if their dead relatives still love them or mad at them. They want to know if they've been forgiven by their dead relatives. They want to know something. But they don't want to actually investigate the evidences God has provided us or use their reason to understand those truths. Yes, Ham. Just a little thing. I mean, the Witch of Endor is bringing up Samuel. <coughs> the Hebrew name for necromancer means a knower. Means what? A, a, one who knows, a knower. Yada, it's built up yada, to know. So uh, it, it's, I think it's an echo of, of the serpent's claim. You know, you'll you know good from You'll be like God. You'll be a knower. But, it, but that's the word for, you know, it's the etymology of the word for a necromancer there, 1 Samuel 28. Yeah, so, so again, pursuit of knowledge without investigating the evidence God has provided us and without using your reason to weigh these things out. This is spiritualism. You understand, Satan has no truth on his side. He does not want people actually pursuing objective truth as God has provided it in the universe that God has created. If you follow the truth, the truth will set you free from deception and always lead you back to God. Truth always leads back to God. Satan doesn't want that. So he introduces other ways of finding knowledge that are not from truth. And spiritualism is one of those ways. And then we'll close really quick on Thursday's lesson, which is upon fallen angels, 
Satan's demonic forces and allies that uh, do supernatural activities of various kinds, pretending to be messengers from God, seances, uh, the witch of Endor, one of Satan's fallen angels pretending to be Samuel, uh, voices, automatic writing, physical manifestations of some supernatural element, etc., uh, etc. Et and one day Satan impersonating Christ claiming to be the Messiah. All of these things, how can you differentiate? When Satan comes back, impersonating Christ, how do you think you'll be able to tell that it's not Christ? Well, he, it, because Christ comes after him, so I know the first one's the fake. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think Satan will send a couple of his demon angels to, to be less overwhelming than him, but supernatural, claiming to be Christ, and he comes and appears to destroy them in more supernatural way? That's an easy deception, right? have a couple of his minions pretend to be Jesus, and then he comes in an even more dominant way and more supernatural power and kicks them off as fake. I mean, he could do that. That's an easy deception, easy trick. So I, I wouldn't count the order. We have Jesus said many false Christs and messiahs will arise. How about signs and wonders? Miracles. How about a melodious voice? How about quoting scripture? How about, how about listening to our church leaders? If our church leaders endorse them, it'll be okay. How about what foods he eats? If he eats a piece of pork, we know he's out. <laughs> how about if his feet touch the ground? Watch the feet. Don't you remember when Satan tempted Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, but in the middle of his wilderness experience, he finds himself at the top of the temple. Isn't that true? Do you think, uh, you know, he called an Uber and had him dri driven over? Do you think he took Jesus on a hike and put up a ladder and they climbed a scaffolding? Do you think Jesus used God's power to transport himself there? To be tempted. Somehow Satan had the power to teleport Jesus to the temple. Do we believe that to be true? Get your mind around that. If he could teleport Jesus, he can probably also walk on water. He can probably also float over the earth and not necessarily touch the ground. We just don't know. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on the feet. I wouldn't bank on that. I'll tell you, what Satan will not have on his side, he will not have truth. And he will not have the methods of God. He will use his historic methods that he used on Christ, which will, and you can watch the temptations, coming first as an angel of light, speaking words that are designed in his, to, to trick, but, but pretend to be interested in welfare. But he will transition. If we don't buy in, if we're not duped, if we don't believe he's the one, we won't listen to his Bible quotes because he's taken them out of context. He will transition to coercive methods, law and enforcement and punishment and eventual threats of death. And eventually, if he could, if God didn't stop him, the actual death of the righteous, have the wicked kill us. He will always go that direction. And the deception will be for those Christians who actually believe that's how God runs his universe. He's given us a law, 
He's died for us. He's paid our penalty. If we don't accept it, and he's done everything for us to win us, then the only thing left for him to do is to punish the rule breakers, and therefore God will use his power to kill. Those who believe that's how it runs will see Satan come and be patient and do various forms of discipline like restricting buying and selling and traveling and imprisoning, all trying to get us to repent and worship him. But if we don't, then law and justice requires that he kill the wicked. And he's sad and he'll cry as he does it. And, and those who worship that God will go right along and think that's right. That's going to be the way you tell the methods he employs in how he advances his kingdom. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to be altogether different than Satan has purported you and misrepresented you to be. We ask that your spirit of love, your spirit of truth, will be poured out into our hearts and minds, empower us and enable us to advance your kingdom with your methods so that the world will be lighted and that so many that are confused will see the light and come out of that, that beastly system into the kingdom of everlasting life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.